0: to today's installment of the Arcananth podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Rivera. The Arcananth podcast is a podcast all about people, politics, institutions, and systems, and societies around the world. And this week, we are continuing to focus on the topics of justice, freedom, and equity as advocated for by Black activists and thinkers. This is being recorded on Friday, June 5th, so that's just 10 days after the killing of George Floyd by the hands of a white police officer in Minneapolis, and the Black Lives Matter movement continues. Today, helping us think through some of these recent events and problems with the current structures in place that that even allow for such a horrendous thing to occur is uh, Dr. Orsani Burton. It's great to be learning from Dr. Burton's insights here. So, uh, Ori, are you there? I am. Hi, Ori. Uh, I'm, I'm really glad to be featuring you. And your work on the show today uh, obviously is really important and very critical for um, just thinking about like social justice and reconciliation. Um, I, I'd first of all just like to ask you how you are doing today.
1: Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Um, mm-hmm. Today, I feel good. Um, I'm fortunate enough to be healthy. My family members are healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got enough food to eat. So it's a good day. Okay. Mm -hmm.
0: And uh, where are you calling in from? Can you give the listeners an idea of where you're based and what your job is at the moment?
1: Uh, I'm an assistant professor of anthropology at American University in Washington, D.C. And my family and I Mm -hmm. live in D.C., not too far from the capital. In fact, uh, a few days ago when things were really heating up, we could smell the smoke coming from uh, the Capitol and the White House. So um, mm-hmm. we're right in the thick of some of the right more intense actions that have taken place.
0: Mm-hmm. Was your road into uh, working into anthropology like a straightforward one? Or how did you first start in college and studying and training for the role that you have right now?
1: Yeah. I mean, the big question that guides my research is how do we get free? and how can we build another world mm-hmm. and how can we fundamentally transform our relationships with one another with the environment with other forms of life and the we that i'm talking about is everyone and the this new world that i'm talking about is a world that's organized by a logic that is outside of uh capitalism and exploitation and the permanent war machine. So that's the question that guides my work. I think that's the question that guides a lot of people's work. And so um, when I decided to pursue doctoral study, my primary question was, well, where can I have the sort of um, theoretical and methodological freedom to ask the kinds of questions I want to ask um, through that discipline, and I, I decided that anthropology was a space that allowed me to mm-hmm. do that.
0: When you when you were at uh, that department, it was in um, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so when you were doing that PhD, were you feeling supported? Were these ideas being supported by others? And were you able to bounce ideas around, conceiving of you know, a new way of of societal, like, organization together with,
1: with others? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, UNC um, has a um, really deep background in um, what they call activist research, and mm-hmm. um, my professors there, particularly Dorothy Holland, who passed away, uh, I believe it was last year, was tremendously supportive, as well as my uh, advisor and my other um, faculty members, even though the project that was very much in its early stages in development was sort of far afield of what other folks were uh, comfortable with and interested in, they all uh, were extremely supportive and um, were really open to like learning with me, both sharing. Um, the sort of traditional anthropological canon with me, but also open to what I was trying to do, which is to really um, bring forth a different theoretical canon, a canon that comes from the praxis of uh, Black radical activists Mm -hmm. on the ground, and to take that seriously as theory, and to think about theory as that which is generated Mm -hmm. from the struggle of everyday people to transform their material conditions, and not as that which comes yeah. mm-hmm. down from the ivory tower. Um, and they were really receptive to that, so I'm grateful that I had that opportunity. Mm-hmm.
0: And so, like uh, anthropology um, as as it exists, like do you do you see the field generally like as a as a tool, as a space? Like, how do you conceptualize? anthropology?
1: That's a good question. I mean, one of the things that I always say half jokingly that I enjoy about anthropology is that it's always been, at least since I've been a part of it, it's always been a discipline that's been in crisis. Mm -hmm. Um, And I find that really productive because it's a self-critical discipline. It's a discipline that's open to sort of these constant transformations.
2: Um,
1: And so for me, it gives me the space to kind of really experiment with different kinds of methodologies and think about, well, how can we stretch what we mean by ethnography? How can we stretch Mm -hmm. the definition of theorization? Um, And so that's sort of what I always come back to. And that's what I find most useful. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and have you know the the experience that you had with your PhD? And I, I was wondering, like, what what were the main takeaways from the research that you did back then?
1: It's interesting, you know. Um, I entered into academia so that I could develop certain skills, hone my ability to analyze situations, collect data, mm-hmm. um, make arguments, in the hopes that that could help in these other endeavors that, that could help people who are engaged in political struggle. Mm-hmm. And so I went through my core coursework and then I started my field work. I started my field work at an organization called the Prison Moratorium Project and um, developed a close relationship with the founder of that organization who was an elder in the Black Radical Prison Movement in New York, his name was Eddie Ellis, He passed away in 2014, Mm -hmm. and when I started interviewing Eddie, I felt like that was the beginning of my actual education. Right. So I've been deeply politicized and um, educated through the process of my fieldwork, and that's an ongoing process. Mm
0: -hmm. Do you have examples of the insights or new thoughts that you received because of, because of those experiences and because of, you know, how the conversations that you're having, do you remember any like particular moments of um, inspiration or, you know, just things that you've now carried on, you know, uh, up until today and you remember as being really uh, particularly meaningful?
1: The main one that I remember, or the first one I'll say that I remember is, um, you know, I entered into the field and I was really interested in what was happening now. Mm -hmm. Right. I was interested in what's happening with incarcerated people once they come out of prison and how they get involved in different forms of activism to challenge the logic of incarceration. That was sort of what I was interested in. Mm -hmm. Um, And I started out by interviewing these elders that I had connections to. Um, And Eddie in particular and some other folks that he introduced me to some of his comrades from the 70s. Very gently and politely refused to answer the questions I was asking them on their own terms, and instead constantly and gently transformed those questions by adding a more historical dimension. Right. And what they were saying to me was that you can't understand the questions that you're asking without placing them in historical context. So, for instance, Eddie Ellis founded an organization in prison called the Think Tank. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Think Tank was uh, just what it sounds like. It was a organization that was dedicated to the generation of different ideas. And um, he constantly pointed back to the history of the Think Tank, and he connected the Think Tank to the history of the Attica Rebellion, and he connected the Attica Rebellion to this much longer trajectory of struggle that I think about through the lens of uh, what Cedric Robinson calls the black radical tradition, right? which is this unbroken um, tradition of uh, revolutionary struggle, intellectual Mm -hmm. production. And it's about the creation of an alternative way of life. It's not a tradition that is primarily oriented towards resistance against different forms of oppression. It's actually more of a proactive tradition that's about the creation of a new social vision of how mm-hmm. the world can be. Uh, and Robinson's argument is that these different forms of repression are responding to that social vision, not the other way around. And so, I had already read that book when I interviewed Eddie, but. What Eddie was saying connected to Robinson's theorization. And it helped me to really um, have a deeper grasp and a deeper respect for the importance of history in my own work. And so that has continued to inform my methodology. It's continued to inform the way I mm-hmm. ask questions mm-hmm. and the way I look at the world.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you think that generally speaking, like anthropologists in the field as a whole, and we can also think of, you know, various stakeholders, maybe like policymakers as well and, and members of the public. Do you think that they right now have a good understanding of how racialized policing, how imprisonment, how these systems came to be, thanks to like the political and, and legal actors that set up the rules just Just historically speaking, as you were talking about,
1: Uh, are
0: they aware of this history
1: enough? Are they aware of the history? I think that we can look at what's happening right now and see how profoundly the discourse has changed. So just right now, if you turn on the news, you'll hear any number of pundits Mm -hmm. and policymakers and politicians use words like structural racism or systemic racism or uh, police violence as opposed to police misconduct. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll hear people talk about the killing of George Floyd as a lynching, right? So these are uh, terms that weren't typically described, weren't typically used to describe this these kinds of events in the popular media. And so I'm arguing that the sort of, this uprising has forced people to contend with the validity of a a discourse of unbroken um, white supremacy and racist state repression that activists have been talking about activists and regular community people have been talking about for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that it's the role of academics and I see myself in this class to help to amplify these different kinds of analysis and also to complicate them. Because I think there's a tendency to oversimplify Mm -hmm. history and to draw straight lines from slavery to the present in ways that actually obscure other dynamics, especially the class dynamics of um, what's going Mm on.
0: Yeah. that reminds me of, uh, uh, this This morning, um, I was reading one of your articles, actually. Uh, I was reading the one that you did some years ago uh, called To Protect and Serve Whiteness. And it reminds me, uh, just being a podcaster, of course, like it, it matters to me about how things are framed. And so every choice, you know, I make with the questions that I ask and the, the, the thoughts that I state on this show, you know, all of them have like political meaning, you know, right down to um you know the topics that i that we cover and i feel um it is is also sort of filtered into the way that like i ask questions especially in the last year where you know i see a lot of like political upheavals and a lot of you know social discontent uh, in many different contexts around the world in the united states and i find that really interesting because it's not just that what is being resisted against is not just like the the sort of structures or the sort of um, the systems that uh, are derived from like uh, capitalism, from uh, slavery, from imperialism, but also it's all, it's also that I think people's uh, beliefs and people's like cultural, mm-hmm. like all the, all the fluffy stuff, you know, like all the, all your values and your, your mm-hmm. ontologies is really, being challenged. And mm-hmm. and so anthropology, as you said, is a field that's always in crisis, always self-reflexive. You know, when these things happen in such a way that is so um, pervasive all around the world, all at the same time, it really is forcing everything to be confronted with. And we as anthropologists or just, you know, academics in general are the ones who have to contend with it from everyone mm-hmm. from social sciences, having to think about racism and anti-blackness and all the way to you know even medical doctors have to think about how uh, covid-19 is you know disproportionately killing brown and and black folks so i think it's it's all really just fascinating as you said that the language is changing but the language being powerful it's that the it's the thought that's also changing too absolutely do you, do you have any uh, thoughts to add to that or anything i
1: mean the thing when you talked about it's not just like structures it's people's culture Mm -hmm. as well it's their their worldview right their um their values you know i hate watching videos of people dying and being brutalized but it's almost like You know, I get exposed to them before I even realize that that's what's happening. Right. So this morning I got exposed to a video of this elderly white man being pushed to the ground by riot gear clad cops in Buffalo and he hits the back of his head and starts bleeding from his ear. Mm -hmm. It's a brutal video. and The cops tried to lie about it until this video came out Um, and it's yet another example of how police violence affects everyone right this isn't just about anti-black violence but we can talk more about that in a moment Mm -hmm. but the thing that is really interesting to me about that video is that one of the cops not the one that pushed him as soon as the guy falls down he reaches down to try to presumably to try to help him like a basic human response of what you would do when you see someone that's hurting and the cop next to him grabs his arm and picks him up so that he disallows him from having that basic human impulse to help this other person. And they just continue to march on while this man bleeds out in the street. And that was just a really profound instance of the culture of policing um, Mm -hmm. that Totally disregards human life,
0: mm-hmm. and I think uh, it also is is that you know that kind of you know just clear lack of humanity is is also it, it it's directed at everybody else and it, it, outside of the police force and right you know I think some people might think oh that that won't happen to me because I don't look like you know who they I don't look like that person that they are now attacking on uh, the TV that we're watching but it can happen to you, you know, and, and you can be next and it doesn't really matter.
1: No, it doesn't matter. And you know, it, it's de- it, it's dehumanizing the victims as well as the victimizers, right? Mm-hmm. In that moment, whoever that person was, who was inhabiting the position of police officer was dehumanized in that moment mm-hmm. because he allowed himself to not engage in this basic act of humanity, right? He allowed his position as officer to supersede to a deeper impulse that is visible in the way that he reflexively tried to help this person. Mm-hmm. He allowed that to be overcome, right, by the, this subject position of the riot-clad officer, riot-gear-clad officer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people are seeing that everywhere. This is what's so interesting about this moment. It's like all of these different layers of obfuscation are being peeled away and people are seeing the violence at the core of policing. Policing is essentially violence work, right? What policing is, is it's a way to maintain social order in a fundamentally unequal structure. How do you maintain order in a fundamentally unequal structure Mm -hmm. is through violence in this case. Also consent. But the consensual dimensions of policing
2: are narrowing
1: in this moment. And what we're just seeing is outright and open violence against anyone, regardless of race, who Mm -hmm. tries to challenge police. Mm
0: Um, uh, uh, in that article, uh, that I was reading to protect and serve whiteness, uh, you know, I, another takeaway that I took from that, uh, is that, you know, a lot of media outlets and, you know, your regular person just, uh, you know, leaving their comments online is also that they're probably, a lot of people are probably utilizing language that is, um, colorblind. Mm-hmm. and. Does not necessarily like mention a racial component. Um, if they just just describe it as oh that is, that is um, you know militarized policing or that is uh, yeah just uh, mass incarceration, uh, things like that. What what, what do you, can you expand on those thoughts?
1: Yeah, well, what I tried to do in that piece was to describe a particular configuration of white subjectivity that's characterized by blindness and aphasia. It's the, the, the inability to speak. It's a white liberal subjectivity, right? As it relates to police violence, such that mm-hmm. racist police violence cannot be seen. It cannot be perceived or even spoken about, except in the most spectacular cases, right? right. And I tried to show that policing from its in- inception in the antebellum South in the U.S. was centrally concerned with controlling the enslaved Black population, and that whites, Whether or not they benefited directly and financially directly from slavery in the sense that they owned, that many of them didn't own people, were conscripted into the process of policing such that to be white is to have the capacity to police, Mm -hmm. right? And that this white liberal subjectivity um, rendered people blind to that historical reality. Um, So I tried to argue that the sort of daily quotidian practices of policing are just as violent, if not more violent, than these spectacular killings, as horrible as they are. Um, But what's interesting about this particular moment and these uprisings is that they're taking place in a context in which I would argue that the value of whiteness as a currency is in decline as finance capital pushes more and more white people to the margins as the life inspe- life expectancy of uh, white people nationally is in decline, right. With rates of suicide and rates of opioid addiction are up. Right. So when we talk about racist policing, people assume that we're talking solely about police violence against black people or native people or Latinx people. Right. But Race is a malleable category, and so anything that police do to racialize populations, white people should see that as an example of what can be done to them, and that actually is what's happening. Because that's why there's so many white folks mm-hmm. out on the street, right? They're not just protesting uh, racist police violence against black people, right? It's not just this kind of moralized struggle to help Black people overcome oppression, right? Many of the people who are out in the streets see themselves in what's happening, right? We're seeing a mass-based response to the failure of the U.S. government to meet the basic needs of a growing proportion of its population. And this struggle was sparked by anti-Black police violence, Mm -hmm. And for the past 70 years, we've seen that this kind of black led revolt is more often than not sparked by killings by police. But I think we oversimplify and, in some ways, depoliticize what's at stake when we call these uprisings protests against racist police brutality, right? Police are armed agents of a racist capitalist state with the right. legal authority to kill. So police violence is a nexus where racist state violence more broadly becomes visible and tangible. And these other forms of racist state violence are the kinds that we're subjected to on a daily basis. And they tend to be rather mundane and embedded in geographies of food access, healthcare provision, employment, education, etc. Mm-hmm. right? And these are equally as violent, if not more so. And they also lead to premature death, mm-hmm. but they tend to do so at a slower pace so they don't act as a catalyst to this kind of rebellion in the same way. But people are well aware that all of these things are connected. I mean, imagine how enraged people must be to have to go to, to go into the streets in the midst of this COVID nineteen pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. We're seeing the end. A kind of end to social distancing in the context of these massive um, political gatherings against the state. And it's dangerous, but people are willing to do it. They're going to, they're, they're, people are going to jail yeah. where their risk of contracting COVID-19 are astronomical. And they're willing to risk that in order to do this. And that should be a yeah. indication of how dire things
0: are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this it just comes at the, you know, at the end of a few you know months of basically like a very poor response to um, how to control the pandemic spread on the part of the government's, uh, you know, healthcare plans or, or policies or like uh, measures that they were taking or not taking. And so it's sort of, exacerbated, and it sparked something.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And historically, Black uprisings have been catalytic of other movements in the United States and around the world. There's something, Mm -hmm. I think, particular about the way and the point at which specifically Black rebellion unfolds and how that is catalytic for other kinds of movements. We see that again and again throughout U.S.
0: Mm -hmm. history. Yeah. You mentioned that we were talking about our prisons. What would be the common experience of someone who uh, may be protesting either in, t- in 2020 or um, maybe in the 1970s, maybe even further back then? What is the common experience that all of these people might share when they are trying to fight for something more radical, um, advocate for something that is different in terms of a new world order? what happens after that and 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 how come that is not a serious problem or it doesn't really force those in charge to think about hey the fact that people are are, are being imprisoned they care that much they are putting everything at risk why is it that um the prison system exists at all
1: yeah i mean the modern prison grew up with the united states of america right um and throughout that history, prisons have been used for a lot of different things, and their social function has changed over time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, I mean, I think that would be the first thing I would say is that the prison is an unstable social form, and it has multiple uses. And um, those different uses shift according to External conditions that are external to the prison, right? Economic conditions, political conditions, um, environmental conditions, right? Right. Um, since the 1970s, some of the dominant sort of uses for the prison at the structural level um, has been to contain surplus population, to contain as a as a reservoir or some prison administrators call it a trash heap for the proportion of the population for whom there is no useful or meaningful or required labor. It's also been used as a strategy of political repression, right? So right now I'm working on a a book manuscript that looks at the Prison as a strategy for maintaining the uh, compliance of Black populations, uh, a strategy of specifically anti Black political repression. And not solely because we live in a racist state, but because the social vision being enacted by these Black people was profoundly um chal- it was a profound challenge for the state right? right so i think for the past 50 years um those have been two of the key um functions of the prison they also are a massive jobs program for people who live in the rural parts of the state deindustrialized parts of the state mm-hmm. uh deindustrialized parts of various states right so um and they've The rise of the prison has been contemporaneous with neoliberalization. So prisons have also emerged simultaneously with the rise of neoliberalism and the evisceration of the social welfare state and the social wage, such that at the same time that people are increasingly struggling in the 1970s and the 1980s, to meet their basic needs, mm-hmm. the different techniques of state repression and containment, prisons and policing and courts and welfare, the criminalization of people on welfare has intensified such that they're being funneled into mm-hmm. these different carceral systems at the same time that, you know, finance capital is expanding and various companies are offshoring to reduce their labor costs yeah so prison is a way to maintain stability within that context
0: mm-hmm. uh, what, what do you mean by that like in what way
1: well if those people weren't in prison they'd be rioting mm-hmm. i mean if people can't meet their basic needs i mean that's what's happening right now yeah if people can't meet their basic needs and um They see no possibility for meeting their basic needs. Mm -hmm. They're going to struggle. They're going to engage in organized struggle. And that's what was happening in the 60s. And so the prison was a response in many ways. The expansion of the prison, what many people call mass incarceration, um, was in many ways a response to... the radical organizing that was happening in various different ways all over mm-hmm. the
0: country. Do you think that uh, currently in like U.S. government, there is, you know, anybody who is even remotely close to kind of bringing in these you know radical theories into the ways that they think about how to administrate the state?
1: Oh, yeah. They already know this. Mm-hmm. I mean, lots of people already know this. I mean, this is so... You know, there's various different ways that folks could have responded to this crisis. And um, I think a lot with, you know, Ruth Wilson Gilmore in her book, Golden Gulag, who talks about um, the expansion of prisons in deindustrializing California, Mm -hmm. beginning in the 70s, but especially in the 80s. Um, And she talks about how, you know, the state has all of this capacity. And there's various things that could be done with the state, right? There's, you know, and and we're seeing that now, right? Clearly, there's enough, the state has capacity to produce hardware and masks. We see that because all of these cops have on all this really expensive riot gear. They have drones, right? At the same time that we can't get access to enough masks or enough tests, right? So the state has the capacity to do that but they're not using the capacity for that. They're using that capacity for repression. So, um, Ruthie writes a lot about state capacity and how in the 1970s, any number of different things could have happened in response to, um, this crisis of capitalism produced in the context of, um, the falling rate of profit and all of these other things that were happening at that time. Mm -hmm. But they chose, to invest in prisons okay um and i don't have a great answer for why they chose that you know mm-hmm. um but at this moment you know they know about that history you know the fbi knows about that history i know this because i study the fbi and i study their role in the prison system they're we- well aware of this yeah. there's any number of responses they could have had to this kind of revolutionary activity and what they decided to do was to um, further militarize the prison system, mm-hmm. to further militarize the prison system. So they're aware of this. Um, but a lot of it happens in secret. You know, uh, a lot of the challenges that, you know, incarcerated people are a, a generally dishonored and generally discredited population.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Most people in prison are poor and they're people of color or they're undocumented and so these are, different, this is, these are different forms of, I would call, different forms of sort of racism mm-hmm. that prevent people outside the walls from seeing people in prison as fully human or for, from believing that they're worthy of different forms of redress. But when, when people think that way, they don't understand right. that prisons mm-hmm. are a weapon against people outside the prison walls for the reasons that i just described because they are a way to maintain a a social order that devalues all life Mm -hmm. all life right especially the lives of black folks and native folks and trans folks and other people of color and poor people but really everyone and so you know what? What we have to do in terms of our analysis is to help people understand the way that these things are intertwined. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. When you're doing research for your book, are you doing ethnography? Like you're you're interviewing people, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, how how many people are you interviewing? Who are there? There were people alive at the time, like around the. The, 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 the jail rebellion, like in 1970?
1: Yeah, so I have an article in the Black Scholar on the New York City Jail Rebellion in 1970. Um, mm-hmm. It's funny. It's been really... Ch- I've interviewed one person who was a participant in that rebellion. Um, and I know some other folks who were participants, but they don't want to talk to me. Um, mm-hmm. And I've interviewed you know, a lawyer who was involved and other folks around that rebellion, but primarily um, archival source material for that. Um, But again, you know, I'm interested in this longstanding tradition that is intergenerational and passed down through oral history, passed down through what we might call folk tales and stories. So, I mean, I, I look at the journalism and prison records. I interview a lot of people, um, but I also talk to people about what they learned about things that they might not have participated in and Mm -hmm. what those things mean to them. Um, Some of the other material in the book is more deeply um, informed by first by first person interviews by people who participated in, but it just so happens with the jail rebellion, it's been really difficult um, for me to find people mm-hmm. who participated in it and who want to talk about yeah. it.
0: But overall, like I guess you are trying to strike a balance, right? And you, you are trying to get to at that effective oral history and uh, I- emotive Experiences of people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm still thinking about this and writing about it, but I think about my source material as coming from two places. Uh, One is the Black Radical Archive, and this requires us really to think about archives in a dynamic way, especially when we're thinking about people who. came to this country as captives
2: mm-hmm.
1: for whom literacy was uh criminalized for much of our history who um have been a highly mobile population uh who have moved in and out of different kinds of punitive and carceral institutions we have to think about archive in a really dynamic way right. it's not always going to be that which is um material or tangible it's not always going to be stored in an official institutional repository it lives in people's memories sometimes it's inscribed on people's bodies Um, it's what happens not just it's not just what people remember but it's what happens between people and between institutions so really trying to think broadly about what and where the Black Radical Archive is. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, um, I look at what an archival theorist named Tonya Sutherland calls the Carceral Archive, which I interpret as the um, archive of of the state, um, which, you know, you can read With it, you you can read along the grain, you can read against the grain, but these are um, court records, prison policy documents, uh, rap sheets, uh, affidavits by prison staff. Um, And these are the things that are typically allowed to speak for themselves. And I argue, so like a lot of the sort of historiography and scholarship about draws heavily on that, as I do as well, Um, because it's so plentiful, because it's so um, meticulously organized, because it's accessible. Um, It's not always easily accessible, but you can find it through Mm -hmm. FOIA and all of these other different methods, right? Um, But I think too often this this kind of discourse that emerges from those documents are allowed to speak for themselves. And we don't understand, or we're not necessarily critical of the way that these documents are mediated through these different layers of um, audit and interpretation and um, violence and all of these different layers of mediation, right? So it's not that we can't use them, But we have to be critical of them and we have to be able to read with them and against them. And so, my method is to read that carceral archive, but to always put it in dialogue with this Black Radical archive and to not be afraid of the tension and the sort of epistemic ruptures that emerge from attempting to draw on these two sources of knowledge. That those ruptures and that that tension actually is indicative of this historical confrontation that I'm talking about between yeah. um, what I would call a carceral warfare state, right. A, uh, and, mm-hmm. and this alternative social vision for a new world. So yeah, that's what I would say about methods and about uh, sources, mm-hmm. but to the extent possible, you know i try to I try to interview as many people as possible. I write letters to people, um, but it's difficult. These are people who I argue are veterans of an undeclared war right and many of them have not survived um, and those who are who have survived are dealing with all kinds of trauma yeah. some of them are still fearful about what rehashing some of this stuff could mean for, you know, their relationships and for their...
2: For their safety.
1: Uh, safety. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff I don't talk about, mm-hmm. you know. There's a lot of stuff I don't talk about and won't talk about for those
0: yeah. reasons. Mm-hmm. But it uh, it is really... Um Yeah, just interesting to hear about your approach, critiquing it on a meta level and uh, comparing those two different sources of information, actually to bring out some interesting questions and new understandings. When you imagine like the sort of new system of society that could be, what do you mean by that? Like, what what do you see in this vision in the future? Yeah,
1: this is a good question. The answer is that I don't know. And I'm trying to be really honest about that. I really don't know because... Mm -hmm. Um, for a couple of reasons. The the main thing that I can ask for right now is for an end to
2: genocide. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I can
1: tell you what I don't want. Like, I, I want the public lynching of black people and these other forms of racialized violence, which impacts all people to stop. Like, I can say that I want a world where, you know, people have enough to eat, where people can, um, where the humanity I was talking about earlier, you know, where this, this dude who's wearing riot gear instinctively wants to help this other person, but is disciplined into not doing that. Like, I want that to stop. I want, I want to know what would happen if we didn't do that mm-hmm. but i don't know the answer to that question um and i don't think that i'm the person who is going to I'm, I'm not the type of person who's going to be the bearer of the answer to that question because in my research i'm arguing that these insights the answer to the question you're asking me is actually generated through the practice of this kind of struggle and i think that um It also emerges from these collisions. Like it's, I think we can see the answer to the question that you're asking in some of these protests, Mm -hmm. right? So... For instance, I read about a hotel in South Minneapolis that started housing more than 200 houseless people. And it's being run by volunteers. They didn't ask permission to do it. They just took it over. Mm -hmm. And the owner of the hotel apparently was going to try to kick them out. But the organizers talked to them and explained to them what was going on. And then it continued. So I'm not actually sure if it's still going on at this moment, but that's like a tiny, tiny little micro example of the kinds of collective, unauthorized life that can emerge Mm -hmm. when people are trying to solve problems together or the way that like the bus drivers union in in Minneapolis and in other places refused to drive people to jail or how Mm -hmm. Minneapolis public schools voted to cut ties with police or how a homeowner in D.C. sheltered protesters in the midst of all this tear gas in his house and let them stay there for several hours so that they weren't subjected mm-hmm. to mass arrests. Right. Um, these are these micro instances. So it's not, like, it's not like I'm saying that there needs to be some massive, instant, cataclysmic shift where suddenly everything's different. Like the thing that I'm calling for is already present everywhere all the time, right. but it's present on a micro scale. And so I'm asking and interested in how do we expand those spaces? And I'm telling you honestly that um, I don't know what it's going to look like when it's over. It's not going to be utopian. There's going to be new contradictions. But, you know, I think this is the question we all need to be asking. Um, and we need to we need to be making broader connections. Because, you know, racist police violence is a precondition for capitalism. Capitalism is increasing the likelihood that the earth will be inhabitable and inhospitable to human life. Right. Right. And so this is a planetary problem. And we need to figure out intellectually and politically. I'm talking to scholars how to make our work resonate in that way like that's actually the urgency so when i see these protests against police violence i see the need to draw that connection so that we understand that look everyone has a self-interest in figuring out because if we can transform if we can end racist police violence if we can do that if we can muster the kinds of radical shifts that would be required to do that then that means that it's, it's going to come from multiple places.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: going to have to come from multiple different constituencies who are going to have to see themselves as necessarily um, invested in that struggle. Yeah. And we have to figure out how to link it to the environment internationally, right? There's been demonstrations against police violence in the US, in Paris, in Sydney, in Greece, in Hong Kong and in occupied East Jerusalem, Mm -hmm. in rebel controlled territory, in Syria, in Berlin. Right. Yeah. And and a lot of these folks are, you know, they see this image of this white man in a uniform with his knee on this black man's neck. And they say to themselves, you know this looks like the way U S imperialism has its knee on our neck, or this looks like the way that police treat us where we are, or, you know, it's not just, Mm -hmm. Oh, don't treat the black people in the U S so bad. It's like, no, we see ourselves in this. Right. And so how can we facilitate these internationalist connections? Mm -hmm. You know, these are the questions and people are already working on this. Right. But I think we need to, Really emphasize the need for to 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 not allow this to be reduced to simply a problem of police brutality. Because if it, if if we allow it to be reduced to mm-hmm. this is a symptom of a much deeper issue. And if we allow it to be reduced to the problem of police brutality, then we're going to end up yeah. with these really um, modest calls mm-hmm. for reform. Police reform, specifically in terms of tactics and training and technology, which is just yeah, not gonna mm-hmm. do it, not even close. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah. I, I, this is not really a question, but yeah, uh, I am when you were talking about the sort of micro instances of just people helping each other out, and in its in its own quiet kind of way, you know that is that is resistance. I find that uh, yeah really resonating because uh, I'm I'm from Hong Kong, and you know we we have been on the streets as well. Um, fighting fighting police since since last April or last May and took a break when uh, the coronavirus hit and then uh, we're, we're now back trying to dismantle the systems and trying to abolish police but it's a uh, very Yeah, it's just ongoing, but just lots of things resonated when you were describing that because my mother, for example, so she's not, she's not a frontline protester, but she usually is someone who will go to the various uh, sort of charity centers or different, just different public spaces. And she'll like try and, you know, provide people with bottled water and, um, you know, like snacks just to keep people's uh, blood sugar up. If people need bandages or people need to like just (laughs) wash their face or something, she has a towelette, things like that. And so, uh, yeah, no, it's very like beautiful to witness, really human, really like absolutely. I don't know, it's kind of affirming as well, just just to witness because it is, you know, when it really boils down to it, say you're on the street and you need help, and then you go to the nearest shop because you need help. The shop is trying to make money in in a capitalist system, and. And you just simply ask them: We need to stay in here. We need to be safe, and we need uh, your resources for just a second. Can can we stay here for a couple of hours to heal up? And when it really boils down to it, it's so affirming to witness those examples of just basic, you know, human on human empathy, and what is it that we're actually doing here with all of our time on Earth?
1: Exactly, and what and and so then the question because this these kinds of instances like they happen during collective struggle all the time Mm -hmm. and i'm just so interested in like figuring out like how do you harness how can we exactly harness it expand it preserve it um generalize it extend it Mm -hmm. right because it feels good i know exactly what you're talking about and it feels good
0: normalize it standardize it yeah yeah thinking of closing the show soon, uh, I wanted to ask you, like, you know, you, you're, you live in DC and I was wondering, like, do you have any thoughts on, you know, being situated in that locale specifically? Does it change the way that you perceive things? Do you sometimes think to yourself that maybe you, you kind of only have your DC perspective or, and, and do you think about like other parts of the country where similar movements are happening?
1: Yeah. I mean, I live in DC, but I've been researching New York for the past, um, you know, eight years.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I'm sure living here does um, shape how I see the world. I mean, this is uh, uh, last
0: a lot closer like, mm, to the to the White House and to the central administration.
1: In some ways, I mean, geographically, like cartographically, I'm close to the White House. But in other ways, I'm not. I live in Southeast D.C. Mm, okay, um, which is um, economically. Um, Alienated from the rest of the city in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. you know, but that's that's changing too. There's a lot of development here. there's a lot of gentrification here mm-hmm. um, but yeah, i mean d c has the highest per capita police presence of any city in America from last I checked right and it's a, it's a federal city. there's a lot of people here who work for, you know, the national security apparatus, you know. So there's a lot of people here who are invested in the preservation of the status quo, you know, irrespective of, of race or class in some ways. Um, so that's interesting. You know, that's interesting. At some point, I would, I would love to um, have my family be in a different context i think it would really be helpful for my children you know um to to be to be somewhere else (laughs) for a little while you know i do i i like where we live we have good friends and that kind of stuff but you know would love to take my children somewhere on the african continent that would be great you know just for Mm -hmm. for a little while
0: Do do you know a lot about your ancestral homelands
1: well you know my parents named me Orisanmi. Um I have a long name. It's a Yoruba name. You know, my parents are African-American. Um, but both of them sort of came into political consciousness during the 60s and 70s. And um, they each changed their names and took on African names. Um, they're in a kind of a black cultural nationalist tradition. Um, And so they gave me an African name, um, a Yoruba name. Both of them are very active Mm -hmm. practitioners of African spirituality. you know what your name means? Of course, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's different ways to interpret it. Um, uh, Ori, Ori, in Yoruba literally means head. Um, But in the Yoruba spiritual tradition, in the Ifa tradition, Ori means your destiny or your character Hmm. or your inner, the inner deity that's within you. And Sanmi uh, means like my strong, it's a conjunction. So Ori, Sanmi mean, you know, you could interpret it as meaning a beautiful destiny.
2: Okay.
1: Um, So, sorry, my son just walked in. Um, So, so I have a sort of a, spiritual connection you know with my ancestors in that way but we are african-american right so my ancestors were stolen from the continent of africa forced to change their name uh and so we've lost track i think some members of my family want to do the or have done the dna testing but I, i refuse to do that um and so um yeah my last name i have an african name but my last name is burton which some slave master gave to me a while back. Mm -hmm. And I decided to keep it because it, you know, my my father, we we used to have conversations about maybe I would drop that name, but I decided not to do that and to actually pass that name on to my children because it represents the contradiction of what it means to be an African person who was born in the United States of America. And I've been to the African continent many times and made close friendships with folks there, and we talk about that contradiction. I think it's important. It's it's it's
0: who mm-hmm. I am. How old are they? How old are your children?
1: I have a eight year old mm-hmm. who just walked in. I've got a.
0: I can interview them next
1: time. <laughs> 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 mm-hmm. He could tell I was doing something important, so he closed the door. I have a two year old, mm-hmm. and then I have two month old. Oh,
0: wow, beautiful. Mm-hmm.
1: So we're quite busy with the social distancing and me <laughs> trying to to write and trying to be a scholar, but also uh, my son's teacher and right camp director, summer camp director, all of that. it's yeah. been It's been really stressful, but, like I said, at the beginning of the interview, you know, we're all healthy. And so I can't complain at all.
0: Yeah. Uh, does, does having children, uh, how, how did that have, you know, you, you kind of had it throughout a lot of your career and your, um, you know, your training and your experiences. Does that change the way that you view your work and how you
2: approach your work?
1: Oh, man. Profoundly. Profoundly. Um, And this is something I don't, I try to talk about it, you know, whenever I can, but I don't think folks...
0: I try to ask about it, you know?
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. No, I mean, it it changes a lot. I mean, in the first instance, a lot of anthropological research is premised on this kind of um, liberal social subject that has no attachments and that can just go places and stay there for extended periods of time and, you know, Mm -hmm. do that kind of deep, deep uh, participant observation, um, for extended periods of time. And so, you know, like, I've always been extremely involved in my kid's life. It's important to me. Um, my wife is very busy herself. And so that's never been a possibility for me. Right. So I'm not going to
0: do that without like great reluctance.
1: Yeah. And plus, like I study prisons, you know, someone in grad school asked me, I, I was a young father. Someone in grad school asked me, why don't you just get yourself arrested so you can go to prison and then you can do participant observation in a prison. And I just like, I didn't know what to say. I just looked at them. I don't know what to say. <laughs> and I know. And I just said, I'm not going to do that. And then the next day, I think, you know, she thought about it and she found me and apologized. But anyway, yeah, so I don't have the that luxury. So, you know, I, I do stints mm-hmm. where I go where I need to go to do archival research or interview people or to do participant observation with people. So it's it's changed the um, flow of my research process. But I'm also critical of you know, participant observation in prisons anyway. I don't think that that's really a real thing unless you're actually incarcerated. I don't think most scholars who get permission to go do participant observation in prisons are actually really doing what most of them think they're doing. Um, It's also changed, you know, I think about my children when I'm doing this research because so much of what I do is about the intergenerational transfer of knowledge. You know, how knowledge is passed down through generations, how the prison is used to break that transfer of knowledge. And my son's eight, so he's at the age now where he asks a lot of questions. And my whole thing, my ethic as a parent is to always tell the truth. You know, I don't Mm -hmm. volunteer certain information, but if he's old enough to ask, he's old enough to get an answer. So I do my best to give him Uh, an age-appropriate answer. Those conversations and thinking about how what I'm doing might be useful to future generations is always present um, when I look at my children. And then the last thing I'll say about that is that uh, having children is probably why I'm not depressed and why mentally i feel like and spiritually i feel like i'm in in good shape having children and having um my wife who's amazing Mm -hmm. because you know i study these various forms of violence and repression you know that's what i think about that's how i spend that's how i expend my intellectual energy and throughout my time doing that having the opportunity to play with my children and watch them Mm -hmm. be one, you know, watch them be wondrous about things and see things from their perspective has really been um, amazing and positive for my own mental health.
0: Yeah. That's really wonderful to um, hear about. So thank you very much for sharing a little bit about that. Thanks
1: for asking me that question. (laughs) I, I didn't expect to be asked that question. So I stammered a little bit, but you know, because yeah, I think we. we it's just this important. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, if people want to ask you any questions after this interview or they want to maybe read or follow some of your work, where can they find you online?
1: Uh, I'm on Twitter, but I don't tweet. My Twitter name is Orisanmi. Um, you can connect with me there. I do tweet sometimes, but I'm not a very prolific tweeter um,
0: Yeah, you don't need to be the, trust me
1: <laughs> no i uh no i i, I agree don't do that. i agree i don't i don't have the capacity to, to do that but there are people who are great at it and i i am thankful for what they do on twitter because it's very useful mm-hmm. um but you can connect with me there and um send me a message and sometimes i do tweet and you can also email me um my website is if you Google my name, my Twitter and my AU website will come up and my email is there. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm. Excellent. Uh, can you come up with a hashtag for this episode so that listeners can uh, use it to indicate that they've heard all the way to this point?
1: Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, actually, it's um, Brianna Taylor's birthday today. Mm-hmm. So it's her 27th birthday. She was killed by police in Louisville a couple of months ago. So, mm-hmm. justice for Brianna Taylor.
0: Yeah. Okay. Justice for Breonna Taylor. Yeah, that's a really important one. And uh, I think that people should go also read up about uh, just her life. And
1: I actually, I said I don't tweet and I usually don't, but I did tweet about her 27th birthday being today and linked to some resources where you can um, donate to a fund that supports her mm-hmm. family and also some other actions that are happening related to organizing around police violence in Louisville where that took place.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so uh, listeners, if you want to uh, look at that, then please go on uh, Facebook, Reddit, Twitter, and Instagram at Pod, And we'll direct attention to that tweet of yours and, and more information about that. Thank you so much. Do you have any uh, closing messages for our listeners? Anything you wanted listeners to maybe direct themselves to if they want to... You know, show support or learn some more. Donate to something. Donate to programs.
1: Uh, yeah. Bail somebody out of prison. You know, bail somebody out mm-hmm. of jail if if you if you got the resources. Participate in some kind of mutual aid. Engage in some kind of uh, ongoing, already existing um, political mm-hmm. organization that's led by people who are affected by these problems and see what you can learn from them and how you can support them. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. There's hundreds and hundreds of resources online um, that people can direct themselves to if you just Google them. Um, I was listening earlier to a uh, another great podcast. Um, it's called How to Survive the End of the World. Mm-hmm. And it's co hosted by an uh, organizer and an artist, uh, Autumn Brown, together with uh, another a writer, Adrienne Marie Brown. Mm-hmm. And the one I was listening to this morning was The Practices We Need, Hashtag Me Too, and Transformative Justice. And on that one, Uh, They have a special guest, Miriam Kaba, who talks a lot about dismantling the prison industrial complex, and it's just really good and really informative so uh google the practices we need hashtag me Too, and transformative justice um, on the podcast how to survive the end of the world so uh, i was also just doing some more research uh, yesterday and i i want to highlight uh something that uh miriam kaba started which is uh, a project called project Nia. absolutely yeah if people are looking for more resources to learn that's a great place that you can do that through and and donate money to if you can so project nia nia works to try and end the incarceration of young adults and, and minors. And so if you support project NIA, you're, you're trying to help stop the arrest and incarceration of those children and teenagers. So yeah, do consider that listeners, if you can, please.
1: Absolutely. I've met Miriam Kaba several times. Mm-hmm. Um, her work is amazing. Um, she's one of the people I look to, to help point the way and yeah. She's profoundly shaped my thinking, um, just reading her writings and those kinds of things. So yeah. I think
0: um, a lot of writing online,, uh, she has her own personal website. and
1: and she's amazing on Twitter, by the way. Yeah, she's one of these people who's just like, I'm really, a clear thinker on Twitter mm-hmm. in a way that I really appreciate. Yeah,
0: there's a reason that she has uh, 176,000 followers. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah, uh, Ari, thank you. This was been this has been great. What are you doing the rest of uh, today and this weekend?
1: Oh, what I'm gonna do today? I think I'm gonna give my son a break from homeschooling. Uh, we gotta pick some radishes out of our garden. Looking forward to that. Um, cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then just oh you know, I might take my son to a protest today I'm not sure I have to ask him how he feels about that possibility Mm -hmm. but I think it would be good for him so we might do that
0: okay yeah he's a big boy Mm -hmm. (laughs) listeners uh, if you want to hear our upcoming episodes new episodes will come out on iTunes Spotify Stitcher and SoundCloud or you can just go to arkinance.com where I will be linking to um, some of Ori's work thank you for listening to this episode goodbye goodbye (laughs) you